Our text for this second Sunday in Advent is from our first reading from Isaiah chapter 40. I'm not going to be showing any of the verses on the screen. We're going to work with this text. We're going to work through verses 1 to 11. So I do strongly encourage you, open up God's Word this morning. If you have a worship folder, or if you want to grab one of our church Bibles, and Isaiah chapter 40 is found on page 599. Page 599. And as we turn our attention to God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Almighty and sovereign Lord, as Isaiah himself says here in this text, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. So write, inscribe your eternal truth deep within our hearts that we might receive your comfort, your comfort, O Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, and I know that pastors say this all the time. I said this just two weeks ago. But Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the most important, one of the most powerful one of the most astonishing passages in all of sacred scripture. And here in these words, God through the prophet Isaiah is communicating to us, he's delivering to us, he's imparting to us, he's giving to us the deepest and most profound Answer to the greatest question, to the greatest need, to the deepest longing of our hearts, of our souls that we as human beings could have. That's what we have here. Now, the original Sitz im Leben, the German situation in life, the context in which this was originally written, this is 8th century BC. And this is one of the greatest times of darkness for God's people, a time of hopelessness for God's people. As Isaiah is prophesying and writing these words in the 8th century, God's people are sadly, tragically divided. You've got the northern kingdom called Israel. You've got the southern kingdom called Judah there with, with Jerusalem. And as Isaiah is prophesying and writing these words, the northern kingdom is in the process of falling, of being destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, 722 BC, and their capital, Samaria, falls, and the ten tribes in that northern kingdom are gone forever, never to return. And so in chapters 1 to 39, of the prophet 
Isaiah. There's a few glimmers of hope here and there, but primarily chapters 1 to 39 is warning, 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 and judgment, judgment, judgment of what is to come to God's people, not only from the Assyrians, but eventually the Babylonian Empire, 586 B.C. Jerusalem will be destroyed. It is judgment after judgment after judgment, chapters 1 to 39, chapter 39, verse 6. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Nothing shall be left. That's chapters 1 to 39. But then we come to chapter 40. And the tone is so radically different. The content, the hopefulness is so radically different. There are some more liberal or progressive theologians, which we don't subscribe to here at Our Father, but more liberal theologians who don't even believe this was written by Isaiah at all. So different in tone it is from chapters 1 to 39. Where now God says this, if you're following along, Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Why the repetition, comfort, comfort? Well, this is how they would emphasize something. They didn't have emojis. What would we do without emojis in our life. They didn't have exclamation points. They didn't have bold font or italics. They had repetition to emphasize something. And so it's not just comfort that God wants to give to his people, but it's comfort, comfort. Imagine sitting in the darkness of exile in Babylon and it seemed like God had left you completely and he is saying comfort, comfort. And he's saying that to you today, Christian, as we wait Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Martin Luther said that the gospel, the very nature of the gospel was personal pronouns and possessive pronouns. God says you are my people, you're mine. He's our God. We belong to him. Verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Other places in the Old Testament, this same word tenderly, it's the language of a husband to a wife, a groom to his bride. This is romance language. This is passionate love that we see here. Speak tenderly, sweetly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, her suffering, her hardship is ended. It's written in the present tense as though it has already happened. This won't, of course, occur until 70 years after they are taken away into exile in 586 B.C., hundreds of years after Isaiah is writing these words. He speaks as though it has already happened, and the same is true for you here today. Your warfare, your suffering, it is so certain it is ended as far as God is concerned. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That's not double punishment. That would be unjust of God to 
give double punishment for a sin. No, this is double blessing. The language here is trying to communicate that despite all of our sins and iniquities, the grace of God and the mercy of God knows no limit. It has no end. It is overflowing. It is overflowing. Again, Isaiah is writing these words specifically for those exiles in Babylon, but he's also writing these words for us today as we, in a very real sense, are exiles from our true home. And this becomes even more, I think, clear in verses 3, 4, and 5. Verses 3 to 5, this is where Isaiah is showing us the answer to the deepest need and longings, the hope that we have. And essentially in these verses, Isaiah is saying something big is coming. If you've seen the movie Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park, there's a scene where they are aware that they are Tyrannosaurus Rex somewhere nearby, a T-Rex, and they can't see it and they can't hear it, but they know it's there and they're sitting in the car and there's a little cup of water on the dashboard and they look at that cup of water and they see the water begin to ripple and vibrate and then there's more ripples and more ripples and more and then it's boom, boom, and the dinosaur is upon them. Something big is coming. Isaiah is saying, verse three, if you're following along, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Now what is all this language about? At the time Isaiah was prophesying these words, this would have been readily understood. This would have been a fairly common practice that when a king was to visit a part of his kingdom, you would literally prepare a highway. You would make a road for the king. You would send engineers out ahead, and if there was a boulder in the way, you would remove the boulder so that the path could be straight. And if there was a little gully or some sort of ditch that had washed out, you would fill it in so it would be smooth. You would prepare a highway for the king. And these highways, these roads were symbolic in two ways. First of all, it was symbolic of the great authority and the majesty of the king. I mean, not everyone gets a road or a highway built for them. So it was symbolic of the, the authority and the power and the majesty of the king. But secondly, to build this road to this particular part of the kingdom, it was symbolic of the healing, transformative presence of the king, of a good king. That if a king, a good king, a good emperor came to your town, to your village, that would mean blessing. That would mean more flourishing. That's what good kings bring. You know this from your everyday life if you work in an office. 
and there's a manager of the office. If that's a bad manager, it becomes a dysfunctional place and a toxic place. If it's a good manager, the, the office can flourish. If it's, if it's a good teacher in a classroom, the, the classroom can flourish. If it's a good mayor of a small town, that little small town can flourish and have more blessing. We understand how that works. But look at the exaggerated over the top, almost ridiculous language that Isaiah uses for this particular king. He says, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. In other words, it's not just a little ditch or a little ravine that's being filled in to be made smooth. It is an entire valley that's being filled, and not just a valley, every valley on the earth. And it's not just a boulder that's being removed so that the highway can be straight. No, it says every mountain and hill is flattened to the ground, not just a mountain, every mountain on earth. It says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, verse 5. Every single human being at the same time will see this king. I mean, if a king goes to a particular village, that king is seen by the men or women and the children who live within that particular village. This is every single human being on the face of the earth. In other words, this king is coming from somewhere outside of the natural, somewhere supernatural. This king is coming from somewhere outside of the physical, something that's metaphysical. Beyond the physical, this isn't just a king, of course. This is the king who is so good, who's returning to his people. And look, the world is described as a wilderness and as a desert. You say this, wait a second. I mean, the world is a wilderness, the entire world is a wilderness, is a desert, and we're in exile. Yes, because we tried to make ourselves the managers. We are bad managers of this world. And we have brought brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness and darkness and sorrow, and disease, and death. And Isaiah sees a day when the king, it's what we want, it's what we long for, a good king to make things good and right again, bring his justice. This is an archetype we see in all sorts of literature and mythology. I mean, in 20th century times, of course, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, uh, the myths of King Arthur and Camelot. This archetype of a good king who comes to his people and restores order and brings justice and peace. It's throughout literature and mythology and there might be some of you here or some of you watching who say, yeah, thank you for reminding me of those legends and thank you for reminding me of that mythology and those stories, but that's all that this is. It's just more mythology. It's just more legend. It's just more fairy tales. Thanks for the reminder. 
If you're here today and you're thinking that way, we're glad you're here. Let's think through that together a little bit. Because we find in modern secular society, modern secular people, a vast, a huge contradiction in the way we think, in the way that we feel, where we borrow one idea from more secular, atheistic philosophy and worldview, and then we go and we borrow some more ideas from more of a biblical or theistic worldview, and we smush it all together and try to live that way. There is a major contradiction in the way so many modern secular people think and feel. Because on the one hand, it is maintained that all of us and all of the origin of the species and human life is simply the product of time, a lot of time, and of chance and of mutations and adaptations and of death and of something called the survival of the fittest. The fit and the strong survive and the weak die off. In fact, there is basically the organizing principle of the natural world is power. The strong dominate the weak in the natural world. I think I said a few weeks ago that I watch a lot of documentaries with my 11-year-old daughter named Amelia, and we watch a lot of nature programming, BBC Earth and PBS Nature. We were watching a show not too long ago, and it was uh, Arctic Life, and it was a little seal family, and a mother seal, and the little baby seals, right, with the white fur, and they are so, have you seen a little baby seal? They are so adorable. But then the music starts, and there's an orca, a.k.a. a killer whale, hunting this baby seal, and, and this, these are amazingly smart animals. They go underneath the ice, and the little seal is on this sheet of ice, this little baby seal, and it's meh, meh for its mom. And the orca busts through the ice and breaks the ice, so now there's a smaller piece and busts through more ice and an even smaller piece and busts through the ice till finally the orca gets this baby seal in its giant orca mouth and starts thrashing, breaking its spinal column, bashes it against the ice, and the white fur is no longer white, and the white snow is no longer just white snow, and I th I'm thinking to myself, I am the worst father. <laughs> How much counseling is my child going to need? I didn't think they were going to show it. They're not supposed to show that stuff. It's brutal. And we are told that we are the product of time and chance and mutations and death and the survival of the fittest and the strong and the healthy survive and the weak and the unhealthy die off. And that is what's brought about the complexity of life and the origin of the species in us as human beings. Okay, that's the one view. But at the same time, modern secular humans also maintain an absolute universal moral truth, which is that the strong and those who have should not dominate the weak, but actually those who have strong should help and serve those 
who are weak. As individuals or as nations, the rich, wealthy, powerful nations, we know, don't we? Just know within that we shouldn't go and colonize them or try to subjugate them or oppress them, right? Those who are wealthy and strong are not to oppress those who are weak. Rather, we are to serve them. I mean, whether you're on the right or the left politically, don't we know that to be true? That's an idea that simply cannot come from humanistic, atheistic, secular thought. I mean, if there is no God and there is no king, there's no absolute right and wrong, and we're simply the product of time and chance and mutation and adaptation and death and the survival of the fittest and the strong who dominate the weak, and all of a sudden we came from that primordial soup, and now we raise up and shake our fists at that primordial soup and say, shame on you. You have to choose. And if you know you know that it is absolutely true that the strong should serve and help the weak, then it means that the natural world in which we live, there's something unnatural about it. And that the physical world in which we live, there's something broken or fallen or not right with it. And in order for us to say that the natural world is unnatural, that can only come from something that is supernatural, beyond this world. To say that the physical world is broken and fallen, that can only come from something that is metaphysical, beyond the physical. That is actually what Isaiah is showing us in verse 8, where he says, the grass withers and the flower fades. This world is not right. It is broken. It is fallen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There is something eternal. There is something metaphysical and supernatural beyond this world. And if we find within us this moral truth that the strong should serve the weak and help those in need, perhaps that is a reflection of the very heart of this God, of our King. Because that's what we see in our final two verses, in verses 10 and 11. Isaiah writes in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Now this word arm in Hebrew is a very rich word. It means the might of God and the power of God, the strength of God, the omnipotence of God. His arm is symbolic of being almighty. The Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. What does this God, this king, do with this might, this strength, with this arm? Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So, I, I, 
All along, Isaiah has been talking about this king and this king who's mighty, who's strong, who's omnipotent, and his arm rules for him. And now all of a sudden, we see this king is what? A shepherd. And what does he do with all of his power? What does he do with all his might? What does he do with all of his glory? He gathers his lambs. holds them close and he will not let them will not let you go who is this we know who this is this king who is a shepherd this is the one that John the Baptist was preparing the way for in the wilderness this is of course Jesus this is Christmas, the almighty God as a helpless infant. You remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come to arrest him. The disciple Peter does what? He takes out his sword and he's going to fight them. And what does Jesus say? Peter, put away your sword. This pathetic attempt at strength. He says, do you not know that I can call down, I can ask my father and call down 12 legions of angels. A legion is somewhere between 5,000 or 6,000. Do you not know that I can instantly command over 70,000 heavenly warriors that would destroy this world? I could snap my fingers and the world would vanish. Put away your sword. This is the one that Isaiah, just a few chapters after this, you know this, Isaiah 53, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, yet he opened up not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people. this great king named Jesus came the first time into this world as I so often say as silent as snow falling to the ground meek and mild he came to suffer and to die and he came the first time we know he came the first time because he came the first time he is coming again One last thing, back in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, behold, his reward is with him. What does God need? God, all the mineral wealth, all the elemental wealth, of not just this planet, but every planet, of every solar system, of every galaxy, of the entire universe. It is all his. What do you get the God who has everything? What is his reward that is with him? It's you. It's us. You. We are his reward. I, I emphasize that here as we close because so often I know I can think of myself as a pardoned sinner. 
I can think of myself, you know, after I've committed the same sin for the thousandth time, I kind of imagine God rolling his eyes. I mean, I know I'm forgiven. It's like, okay, yeah, I forgive you again. You know, almost begrudge. Sure, I, look, I have to forgive you. I'm God. So yes, I forgive you. You're forgiven. I'm a pardoned sinner. You're not just a pardoned sinner. You are his reward. You are his treasure. You are what he values more than anything. This is how much you matter, how much your life matters to him, that he would give his life for you. You're his treasure. You're his reward. And essentially this entire text, he's saying, I can't wait to be with you. To Christ alone, to be all the glory. Amen.